and welcome to Fulhamish Podcast. My name is Sammy James. Thank you for downloading this episode and your continued support for our weekly audio pit stop for a reverent Fulham discussion. Joining me on the podcast this week, Farrell Monk is here. Good evening, Sammy. Jack Collins is here. Hello, everyone. And we welcome back Ben Jarman. How are you doing, mate? Good evening, mate. I'm very well. Good to have you with us once again. And I'd like to think that if this podcast proves anything, and to be honest, it doesn't really prove very much, but the fact that we're never short for material just shows that supporting Fulham, life is never dull. So in the week, we recorded an important win over Barnsley on Saturday and the Chris Martin Crexit debate took a new twist. It was a dramatic U-turn, the likes of which Remainers could really only dream of uh, as Chris Martin committed his short-term future to Slav's team at the very least. And we're going to discuss both those topics, plus we'll also examine the departure of Hozabed. Uh, have I pronounced that all right? Yep, yep. Uh, he's decided to leave freezing England for a six-month stint on the Spanish coast at Celta Vigo, which I think sounds rather appealing. I wouldn't mind six months uh, in the north of Spain. Yeah, no, apparently there's really nice octopus there, just on the border with Portugal. Oh, very yeah. which, part, which part of Spain, north or south? I, I think it's in the north, yeah, oh, okay. north of Spain, northwest of Spain, I believe. Northwest, yeah. yeah. There was a heated discussion as to whether Vigo <laughs> is in the north or south of Spain before it's this. Clo- its closest city is Porto, which obviously is in Portugal, and it's a very famous port town. And obviously the massive rivalry between Celta Vigo and Deportivo La Coruña as well. But we're just going to confirm it's definitely in the north of Spain like I thought, not in the south of Spain like you thought. Yeah, you're right. You're right, you're right. Yeah. Port, port is near Porto. Thank Porto you. is really nice. My, it's a really nice white port in Porto. <laughs> My ego needed that. So let's discuss Saturday's win against Barnsley. Another really convincing performance from Slav's side. And it feels like the first time in years where we can go to Fulham matches expecting a good performance from the team. Uh, but it was a potential banana skin Barnsley were two points above us in the table but in the end they were swept aside with considerable ease Farrell how big a win was that on Saturday massively we we took apart a team who were gunning for a promotion they're good side you know we made we talked up uh, Hurahan in the week and he's on the radar of many big clubs out there and we made him look ordinary he I didn't see a you know particularly good thing he's a neat and tidy player but he he couldn't they couldn't get the ball for more than five five seconds Barnsley we absolutely raided them whenever they tried to get the ball forward just wouldn't stick for them because we were just hassling them and we had the ball forward so much we had it in so many good positions and we made a good team a team that's in the top 10 of the table look like a team who are bottom of the table um, you know absolutely dominating them for the full 90 there was a couple of points where they got close there was the um, the shot from Adam Hamill that, Hamill that hit the bar that seemed to come out of nowhere I've struggled to think of many more openings for them, and I can think of 20 openings for us just in probably the first half alone, even though there weren't that many sort of clear-cut chances. Yeah, and Ben, back on the podcast, uh, what did you think of uh, Callis and Martin, uh, who were back in the side? They make such a difference to this team. I think Callas definitely. Uh, uh, our defensive solidity just is second to none when we've got Callas back in there. I mean, the, just the presence that he offers and then... That supreme confidence that communication will bring across a back four is something that Callas brings to the table well over a Maddo or a Sigurdsson or, or a Ream can. It has actually made Ream look like quite a world beater since his return. And I've just, I've, I think I've also been impressed with Ream as well. He had very good games against Ipswich and has had a couple of very strong home games since then. So he looks like he's really settled in the side. And I think that's down to just playing next to Callas, which seems strange because Callas is such a young, younger guy. Um, for him to be schooling someone like Tim Ream, who's nearly 30 now, it, it shows how good he really is and we should definitely push to get him permanently, even if it does cost us a fair bit. And then Martin, of course, just brings presence up front and that presence of mind to bring other people into play. And that is especially at the four in the second goal. Um, and I think, yeah, just the inclusion of those two brings us up another level. But not forgetting on your point, Farrell, like, we did make Barnsley look a little bit terrible at times and I completely agree with that. But they have been stripped of a couple of key players in the run-up to this game, like Sam Winnell uh, and one other whose name escapes me right now. Jack? Who's the one that went to uh, Sheffield Wednesday? That's Sam Winnell that went to Sheffield Wednesday. but. Certainly, that I mean, that was a, a big loss for them. It was quite a cagey first 45 minutes, I thought, Jack. Agreed with Farrell that we did create a lot of chances, but they had two good ones. There was the Hamill chance you mentioned and Bradshaw missing quite an easy header of... Um, from the free kick in the first half. Our goal and penalty came at the perfect time though, right at the end of the first half. Yeah, it really did. And I think that, you know, there were there was a we started really well. We had a really, really good opening twenty and we posted about it saying we've had a good opening twenty and as soon as we posted pretty much it it all went it all went down the pan. And um 
who who actually looked really good for them was was our old boy Ryan Williams mm. in mm. the in the ten sort of floating about and and he was ghosting past players at points and it was when he came to life that they really started to to click up front and yeah we the point that Farrell made was was about was about Conor Hurahan and how his you know sort of lack of game control stood up and we said you know our key battle here I read out our key battle from preview. <laughs> Barnsley's midfield general is highly rated by many experts around the country with his recent form granting him an international call-up. However, if Kevin McDonald can stifle the Irishman's creative impetus, it will shut down the hub of Barnsley's attacking play and should curb their threat. Which is it's pretty much spot on. I'm going to say so myself. Uh, but it really was. The, the only time that they got into the game was you watched Conor Huran drift out wide and it was when they got that free kick and that chance that Tom Bradshaw missed was the probably the best chance of the game I thought for the for, for Barnsley and it came courtesy of of wonderful set piece delivery from Hurahan and yeah you're, the Welshman should have done better up, up top with that but apart from those two chances and, and the Hamble chance did really come from from nothing yeah but it really was a, a one way system and I think that when the penalty went in and as soon as we had control of the game it only ever looked like going one way and and, and that's how it turned out. If you want to read our previews, uh, me and Jack uh, write them before most Fulham games. Most games, yeah. Um, you can read them on the fulhamish.co.uk website. I'm sure we'll have a special uh, for the Queen's Park Rangers game on Saturday. It's basically who has time on a Thursday to write it uh, between myself and Jack. So you mentioned the penalty. Um, we finally scored a penalty. McDonald fouling McDonald. Did you think it was the right call? I thought it was a little bit soft at the time, but maybe looking back on the replays, it looked a little bit more justified. Hard to tell from Hammersmith end. I would say that looking back at it, because when you're at the game, you can't really spot all of that, all of what's going on in the penalty box for uh, uh, when a corner comes in. Um, but looking back at the replays, I think we were lucky that that the referee just happened to be looking directly at that when McDonald pulled McDonald back. Um, it was soft, but it's a penalty at the end of the day. He pulled him back. Whether Kevin was actually going to get the ball, we don't actually know, but it's a penalty. He pulled him all the way back. You know, people might actually say, you can't give those because then you give 20 a game, but... Stop doing it then. Well, well I given disagree. the new FA rules, I don't think that's a penalty, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the new implications of FA rules this summer say or this summer it came into play states that you are manhandling anyone in the box and it is a penalty. Mm. And, and even there was a penalty in the first game of the season, I think, that involved Hull when then one of the players was nowhere near the ball, was taken to the ground, and there's such there was a penalty awarded to mm. Hull. So going by the, the law and the textbook, that should have been a penalty, and rightly so it was. I'd have been gutted, gutted if that had been given against us. And I remember us saying against Norwich <laughs> that it wasn't a penalty when Cameron Jerome was pulled down in the box by Scott Malone. And I think if that wasn't a penalty, then nor was if someone had given that against us. I'd be devastated because it's such silly defending. Yeah, it is silly defending. Oh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, there's no need for it. But at the same time... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going anywhere when I play football. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'd have gone down. Don't get me wrong. I would have gone down as well. But... Mm. You know, I would have been playing for it. So <laughs> it's weird to try and analyse a penalty, but I'm going to try to. Chris Martin made it look easy. Is there any explanation, or is it just it's finally the law of averages has worked out? It's only our is that two penalties in seven now this season, if yep. I'm not correct. Yeah, yeah, in all competitions. I don't want to. I don't want to be devil's advocate, but I didn't think it was that good a penalty. It just happened to go the other way to the keeper. <laughs> like, you know, like I don't think that's any better or worse than quite a lot of the penalties yeah. we've missed. Yeah, I think he genuinely just stuck it bottom right. And if the keeper had gone the right way, the keeper probably would have got to yeah. it. There's uh, a, I remember Clint Dempsey was probably our worst successful penalty mm. taker. All of his penalties used to be sort of easy height for the keeper, sort of. You know, the goalkeeper could stretch out one hand and probably get it, but the keeper always seemed to dive the other way, apart from the one against Chelsea that time. Which we'll never what? forgive him no. for. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't stop. He did that bloody run-up. <laughs> for me, the the, mo- the big difference between that penalty there and the one he took against Rotherham and then the one the ones we've missed um, since then is just the fact that he put a lot of power on it, which is the big differentiator here. Um, and the one call he put, away in the, the cup well didn't put away in the cup sorry against Bristol was terrible I had no power on it and yeah this one just power in a good area luckily the keeper went the wrong way I was interested to find out I know Farrell you've done some research on this I can only recall one penalty last season which is Woodrow away 
against mm. Rotherham. Now, we're only just into January and we've already had seven. Now, that could be down to what Ben has pointed out, you know, slight tweak in the rules and maybe referees in general are giving away more penalties. And I guess uh, if anyone knows those stats, um, please do tweet us. But is, is that correct? We only had one last season? Uh, we actually had three. Uh, oh right. Last season. Okay. What were the uh, other ones? We actually we we're not the most penalties this uh, in the championship. Okay. Uh, Reading have got had ten. Ten. And they've missed five of them. Well, it's better than us. Yeah. Fifty percent. I take fifty. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we actually have had a really good um, uh, penalties over the past few years. So before this season, I can't remember when the last one we actually were the first one we missed this season. But before then, we had a hundred percent record. Uh, last year at 100% record, 12 in 12 the year before last. We're 12, that's quite a lot. Yeah, and then in the, the Premier League year when we got relegated, we had seven from eight, although the last one we had we missed, which was from memory, I think it was Steve Sidwell against Spurs, Yeah, which yeah. I was there at and I was, I was really gutted because I thought we were coming back into the game and we got a penalty with about 10 minutes to go and I thought, here we go, here we go, and it definitely was not go. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing was go that season. Um but it's just interesting that we've got so many. I guess part of that is the tweak in the rules, or do you think that it's just generally more attacking play equals more penalties? Yeah, yeah, I'd go for yeah. That. yeah, being more positive on the ball, getting into the we get into the box a lot more frequently mm. this year than we definitely did last yeah. year, as you can tell by the amount of penalties we we got last year, and our positivity throughout the pitch is obviously has resulted firstly in more goals, and then secondly in, in more chances created, and then naturally more penalties as well mm. it's like that myth uh, to do with uh, united never getting pen- uh, never getting penalties given away uh, from them at home but they're just such a good team at home that the mm. ball hardly ever goes in the box for penalties to be given really i've seen what well, i've seen fulham score a penalty at old trafford Steve Malbrook in the FA Cup quarterfinal. I think that was the first penalty at Old Trafford against United for about 12 years or something ridiculous. And Zat Knight smacked oh. the bar from the halfway line. I remember that. And then I think Van Nisseroy scored uh, two in something like crazy 60 seconds. Um, moving on. So it's second no half... Not. It's good to know that Brighton that Brighton brace wasn't a you know a mm. new thing for the Fulham. For the Fulham <laughs> <crowd>. <laughs> oh, we've seen it all before. Good. <laughs> uh, so second half, uh, Fulham were scintillating once again, uh, coining a phrase off of Jack. Uh, the cottage carousel in full swing. Um, it seems like when Fulham in front, it's so difficult for teams to get back in the game. Ben. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and um, I think. It's just because we really we can really stifle teams when we keep possession so much when we go ahead and, and the confidence we have to keep pressing it throughout the, the team and throughout different parts of the pitch. And we're very good. I just recently picked this up as well in our style of play and it was very good from switching from one flank to the other pretty quickly with a searching ball. I know um, that was apparently, according to um, the World Football Phone-In this week, that the switch was actually um, pioneered by Graham Taylor. Um, only a few years ago. Um, well, I say a few years ago, probably a couple of decades ago. But yeah, we're getting very good at switching play. We seem to keep it away. And then we had a we had a point in the match um, that Fulham actually posted on their own channels uh, today um, of a 53-pass sequence from back to front uh, where we kept the ball for just over two minutes um, that led to a Steph Joe shot. Unfortunately, Steph Joe didn't have his best game at the weekend, so... Uh, couldn't score that one but yeah 53 passes without the other team touching the ball for a total of two minutes and that's why we can stifle teams when we get ahead and also something I noticed that we, when we're out of possession we're much better positionally now than we ever were at the start of the season and a lot of people talk about Mourinho teams being very good positionally and they were talking about that on Super Sunday this week that out of possession Mourinho teams are very compact they like to hold the ball they like to work areas and Fulham are actually pretty good at doing that especially in the back six of our team where are the front uh, five or six or four um, will always push the ball mm. so I think that's why we're good when we go ahead we, t- we tend to stay ahead The only problem is that um, which I found from Saturday that although we did absolutely dominate Barnsley don't get me wrong that second half was an absolute walkover was that there was just one or two times when we were pushing quite high to win the ball back yeah. and it just left a huge gap in between our defence and midfield, which led to um, a couple of quarter chances, not even half chances for Barnsley to counter-attack, where Hamill was picking the ball up in between that area and, and had a chance to run at Ream. Yeah. Um, 
I think that's why that change in um, formation, uh, i.e. bringing McDonald's just the, so, the sole screener in front of mm. that back four and just letting everyone else do a job has worked so well for us. And then what I think, like you said, we get caught a bit too far out of pitch. But then as well, when we have possession, sometimes we try to play it out so much that we kind of muddle ourselves in the middle of the pitch. Mm. And then we can be susceptible to giving the ball away quite in quite dangerous areas. But again, like you play high-risk football and that's going to mm. happen to you. But yeah. When we work it around so much, it's amazing to see and incredibly beautiful. But yeah, um, sometimes I wish we wouldn't get stuck in the middle of the pitch. Even when we are in the middle of the pitch, it's just brilliant to see the absolute confidence in all of our players, in e- in everyone else around that yeah. team. Even they the know, centre-backs. Yeah, I've I never seen so many one or two touch passes mm. from two centre-backs and even Button as well. Yeah. And that just sort of, just taking that half a second less or even a couple of seconds less to play a pass, just gave Barnsley no chance to even get the win the ball off us high yeah, up the pitch. Completely agree with that. And then uh, one thing I noticed also, just quickly, is that we're not using the channels 100% down the outside anymore, if you know what I mean. So if a full, if Fredericks is the fullback and he plays the ball inside to Piazon, for example, he doesn't always overlap on the outside. Now we're starting to see him coming into the inside channel, much like Dani Alves used to do for Barcelona with Messi, and then push to the byline. And I think that is... It's becoming more and more crucial to us because not only does it bring back their opposition winger, but it also means that their fullback mm. is in a two-on-one situation and doesn't really know how to act. I think that was one of the learning points from the Brighton game because they tried, they noticed that Malone and Fredericks were trying to get to the byline and play balls from there. Mm. Um, but Brighton did quite well at try, keeping that very compact and keeping yeah. that gap in between their fullback and their centre-back as tight yeah. as possible so they couldn't find that channel which meant a lot of our crosses came from a lot deeper mm. and it just didn't pay off for us that yeah, day. Yeah. Wholly agree with that. I did notice that Barnsley were very much trying to double up partially on Malone but especially on, on Ryan Fredericks he nearly always had two men on him. Ryan Fredericks personally sometimes I wish he could be a tad greedier. There's a couple of times <laughs> oh, where yeah. I, I wish he goes for the shot and he unselfishly nearly always goes for the crossbar. I think there's been a couple of times this season. I think if he'd have just wrapped his foot around it on the, with the outside of his foot, he f- could have found a couple in that bottom corner. He gets into the penalty box so much. Yeah, He's often quite wide, and that, I think that's one of the things that, you know, this this underlapping fullback, as uh, Pat Nevin once coined it, I believe, about Leighton Baines. Um, he, they, they get into the area, and, they, and, and instead of being outside drilling balls in, they find themselves in this kind of sort of new just inside the, the edge of the penalty box kind of position where you can shoot, although the angle's small. Or, and I think that once he finds himself in that position more and more, there's going to have to end up being sort of a, a point where you kind of, it says to him, look, look, Ryan, like you're in that spot. Have a go. Look, look at, you know, look mm-hmm. at Malone. He's, you know, he's not, he's not afraid to have a go. And, you know, often it doesn't come off. And, but I think that Fredericks is twice the player Malone is, if I'm honest. And I think that if you look at, the way that he, you know, can fizz a ball across the box. If you can actually get him looking at that for the far post, and even if no one then gets a touch, it's mm. a deliciously like, a, you know, attacking ball to drive that towards the far post, and and it and it works even if no one gets a touch. Then yeah. it can come off the post and go in, or yeah. or anything like that. So I think that once we see Fredericks in that kind of underlapping role a little bit more, we'll we'll get more out of him in that in that respect. I would say that the amount of times that Fredericks did get to the byline at the weekend and tried to play a ball, uh, like a cutback, I would none of them seemed to work. We were getting some brilliant positions, and maybe if in the first two or three times he did have a shot that time, um, it might have made the covering defender think about what Fredericks are going to do next and open up the cutback because hundred percent of the time they're always cut out. Well, I don't think we had had a shot from. Um, yeah, a cutback. Yeah, we say this, but then we've scored so many goals from cutbacks this year. I yeah, think yeah, yeah. There's three alone that you can you can name as Aite against Rotherham, Steph Joe against Cardiff, and two Steph, against um, Steph Joe against. Well, effectively, two Rotherham against Cardiff as well, because yeah. although it came off the bar and Sessegnon yeah. tapped it in, uh, and there was also Piazon's got one from a cutback. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, so knows. there's a lot of there's a lot yeah. of goals going. Well, Scott Malone's having shots. <laughs> we saw that at the weekend. Yeah, I mean, That's I'm not quite sure where that came from. Funny enough, I sent this to Sammy earlier. Apart from the goal, I didn't think Scott Malone had that good a game. Yeah, I think I, I would did, agree I think with he that. Was, I think he was quite poor, in fact. He was in the, moment. according to some of the stats, he, yeah, he was in that uh, FPL team of the week, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, so he's in the EFL team of the week. So that's not just the championship team of the week. That's also championship, league one and league two. So it's quite a... Have they just given quite, him that for the goal? Like, it's yeah, they must have done. Because according to a few stats, he only he didn't complete a cross this week. Yeah. And only... 
had a pass completion rate of about 60% or something. Like a football manager, man sure, of the I'm match, sure. where like one of your centre backs, they you lose like, uh, you lo- it's like a draw three all and one of your defenders scores a goal, man of the match. Yeah, yeah it was it was very odd. I, I didn't think that Malone, and I, I, while Malone offers an excellent attacking threat, I still don't massively rate him as a left back. I don't f- think he wins the ball very much as a left back. In the first half, because it was, it was close to me the whole game where I sit, um, he made two very good tackles that stick out in my memory. Yeah. Maybe because it was just close to me. Yeah. I, th- I would say that, I wouldn't say it was his best performance, but in comparison to the rest of the team, it probably wasn't as good as everyone else, I would say. Yeah, I just it was just something I noticed because there was a lot of there was a lot of Malone chat going around and and mm. I, I agree it's a sublime finish. It's, yeah, it's you know it's magical, but it was I just thought that it was his sort of only real contribution. If I if that's all I can sort of remember him doing for the whole game, but there were some magic moments on on Saturday, and yeah. I really did. My favorite moment of the day was Steph Joe taking someone out with a Maradona turn. So their keeper, <laughs> their player had the ball in the middle. I think it was. Um, Scowen, Josh Scowen, who had one of the worst days of his life, him and A.D. White <laughs> must have literally left oh, Fulham oh. just thinking, AD well, White I mean, what's wrong with me? Like, I mean, he must just be like, oh, what's going on? It was after A.D. White, Aluko mugged him twice in the first three yeah. minutes, and it was like, well, you're going to have an awful day at the office here, son, aren't you? But it was Scowen, and he'd won the ball back, and he was going over to take it, and it was the first good thing he'd done all game, and the ball went a little bit far, and Steph Joe sort of maradonaed, and yeah. as he did, he wiped him into the balls, and <laughs> It was like, it was like, you're really not having a good day at the office, are you, Josh? Do you think they're there at home, like in a chair, just shaking on, on a Saturday? Just like, oh, my God. <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan Abita's still got PTSD from when he came to the college. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he got mugged off so hard. Um, but it was an exceptional goal from Scott Malone, who said to uh, BBC London after the match he didn't know what to do uh, when celebrating the goal. He said he just shut his eyes. Uh, and it went in but it's his third of the season now he's getting a little bit of a knack and he loves playing against Barnsley yeah he, he does but honestly what a finish that is to like come in at that speed and still get your knee over the top of the ball so it doesn't end up in Rose Ed mm. and for it, for it to be directed into the bottom corner is a fantastic finish it's and I actually sit in Rose Ed so that would have been me you could have headed it <laughs> yeah. back to it it's in the You've side probably been hit well. a couple it's of not... Luco shots right yeah 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 <laughs> It's not, you know, anywhere. It's it's in the side netting, fully yeah. like wrapped around the post, kind of, you know, mm. a brilliant. It's just an unbelievable finish and an unbelievable pick out from Chris oh. Martin. And also, everyone spots. was like, went around, literally before it landed. Everyone was like, "What is he doing?" <laughs> and literally, the bloke behind me said, "He was like, what's he up to?" And then Malone hit it. And it was like, <laughs> "That's what he's up to." <laughs> so that win took Fulham to eighth in the championship. Uh, uh, Norwich lost to Rotherham, so we climbed above them, and we climbed above Barnsley, uh, who were only two points above us at the start of the day. Uh, so we're just behind Derby, and then there's a few points up to uh, the playoff places. Uh, some interesting results in the championship at the weekend. The most interesting potentially coming on Thursday night, which obviously uh, was the Queen's Park Rangers win against Reading, notable for two reasons. One, because obviously Reading are just a few places above us and starting to look really like they could go on a bit of a slide. And I think we may... Have we mentioned on the podcast that Reading have been quite overachieving yeah. this yeah. season, especially when you look at the statistics? Yeah. It's, it's quite surprising. They do have quite an ageing squad, so I would say that... I mean, they've 37-year-old Gareth McCleary, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> what a man. 58-year-old Paul McShane. <laughs> Don't sell McShane. <laughs> but also interesting because uh, Queen's Park Rangers now with three on the bounce uh, as they go into the Fulham game. Uh, We'll discuss that in a second, but, I mean, Leeds are starting to look like a bit of a force. Good win for them Mm. on Friday night. I spoke to a Leeds fan on Saturday. They're aiming for the top two. They genuinely think they can trouble Newcastle and Brighton, and um, after Brighton lost their big unbeaten run at the weekend, you could hardly blame them for getting a little bit overexcited. Yeah, and also they've sort of come from nowhere, nowhere. And we were saying, I remember saying right at the beginning of this when we were looking at the teams above us going, we're better than Leeds. And because, you know, you looked at that performance at Elland Road at the, and they were not diabolical, but poor. They were they didn't really offer much up front. They seemed a bit shaky at the back. And, you know, much as they sing about Pontus Janssen being magic, he has done wonders in their defence. Mm. He has, you know, really proved himself to be a Premier League player. And I suppose that... You know what Leeds fans will be worried about is if that they don't go up. I mean, he's going to he's going to yeah. be going up one way or the other. But mm. at this rate, he looks like he could be going up in a Leeds shirt. 
So they do they do have an option to sign him permanently, which looks like they're going to take up. I but thought yeah, they might have could... activated it already, but mm. I, I mean, surely someone's going to pop in and usurp that because you know he he looks a cut above. He looks yeah. you know, Callas esque in um in in some of the things he does. But also they've got they've taken a bit of the pressure off Chris Wood, who obviously did really well for Leicester that season that they got promoted. Um, and I think he's a, a really good player, Chris Wood. He, he has quite a lot of options in his mm. arsenal. But Kamar Roof started taking, started living up to his, you know, mm. potential a little bit, and it's taken a bit of the pressure off Wood. The and roof Wood's, is finally on fire. The roof is finally <laughs> on fire. But he, um, he, it's taken a bit of the pressure off Chris Wood, and now Chris Wood looked like he's enjoying his football again instead of mm. sort of bearing the whole weight of the club on his shoulders. And yeah, Leeds look like a really, really impressive unit again. Do you think it's likely that Reading and Huddersfield could be the sides to slide out of the playoffs if any of them are? Because Sheffield Wednesday and Leeds look strong and if Fulham are going to break into the playoffs and a lot of fans do seem confident that that is a strong possibility and you just you imagine Derby must still be gunning for it despite a couple of poor results. Two sides are going to have to drop out. Perhaps this is quite the, the easy answer to make but in terms of especially with regards to Huddersfield and potentially with Reading, you sort of look at their squad depth and you think, have they got enough to sustain a long run? Have you got that, that quality and depth, especially with those those two guys? But also, just quickly going back to Leeds, if you're Hugh Jennings, who's chairman of Swansea, you sat there thinking, have I made the wrong decision by sacking Gary Monk just over a year ago? Is it a year ago? Just yeah, over a year and a half ago. Just before Kit. Yeah, who's, yeah. who's revitalised Leeds and is looks like he's going to take them back to the Premier League and then you, you're languishing four managers later at the foot of the Premier League table with someone you're not probably not got a whole lot of confidence in, although Clement is a good manager. Mm. The funny thing about Gary Monk is it seemed like a coup for Leeds to attract someone mm. like Gary Monk, but he was still only a manager with... One club. One with club. one yeah. club. No real record. And a, yeah. a season and a half's like, experience. He's not got that much experience as a manager. It just happens to be his experience was for a very respected footballing side in the Premier League. He got quite um, a lot of publicity after the, the start of his Swansea tenure because he was, you know, obviously a really good young British manager, I suppose. That was, And he got a lot of, oh, Gary Monk's going to be the next England manager. Yeah. And there was a lot of that after he won. I think he won a man of the, two man of the months in about four or something like that and he did he did do really well and I think the, back in the day I wrote an article about Kit Simons and Gary Monk and how using a homegrown manager with the club's best interests at heart um, could have had a positive effect on on the club and it was pretty much as I wrote that article Swansea started a slide and <laughs> Gary Monk got sacked and then about four weeks later Fulham started a slide and, and, and Simons got sacked and it was it was one of those where it was it all sort of went so well for a little while. It was all a very fairy tale. And then it just sort of dropped out. But I think Gary Monk didn't necessarily get a fair crack of the whip at Swansea. So next up for Fulham is Queen's Park Rangers. Uh, the Derby on Saturday, 12.30 kickoff at UK time. It's on the telly over here on Sky Sports. So if you're listening to this overseas, I imagine uh, there'll be a good stream for you to watch. I know a lot of people managed to watch the Barnsley game on Saturday because it was on telly in somewhere in Scandinavia, I believe. So and in America as well. Yeah, so, really? Yeah. So I think quite a lot of people were able to watch the Fulham-Barnsley game uh, on Saturday, and you'll be able to watch uh, the Rangers game this Saturday as well. Typically, as I just mentioned, we seem to be playing them as they've hit, our, they've hit form after being pretty much terrible ever since they recruited Ian Holloway. They weren't very good against Reading. I know they won, but mm. uh, actually watching the game, they were quite poor, and Reading should have buried them to be honest and it was you know it's a it's obviously a little bit worrying that reading play a little bit like us in terms of they like to dominate possession and and try and carve chances through like intricate passing play and they couldn't break down qpr so then maybe that's a slight cause for concern but actually apart from the goal qpr didn't create very much and they weren't and also even the goal i'm not sure they mean to do that i don't know if you've seen the i have um it's a sort of it's quite a good ball. It comes back from the fullback and a player, instead of shooting, sort of drills the ball behind the centre-back and Mackie just taps it in. It's almost like yeah. an inch-perfect cross, but I'm almost 100% sure that he's not trying to do that. Like, I'm pretty sure he's shooting and has just scuffed it and it's just fallen in the right place. But, you know, I think that QPR are there for the taking at the weekend and we, we, we need to be putting that to bed. And then not only... They have won three league games in a row, but they did have a pretty terrible loss against Blackburn in the cup only seven days ago. So, And then their other two wins were against Wolves and Ipswich. So yeah. maybe, maybe I'm getting a bit carried away with QPR's form. 
Yeah, I think you potentially could do. I mean, when we played Ipswich, they were diabolical. Let's put it let's put it nicely. Um, but yeah, well, I, I've watched QPR a couple of times this season, mainly on the TV, and obviously TV doesn't give you a full picture of how the game went. Um, Sky are going to launch their own QPR channel soon, aren't they? Just, probably. Uh, Sky Sports QPR, yeah. one of those pop-up ones. <laughs> yeah, Tony Cascarino. Um, <laughs> this is a front man. Um, you know, um, apparently he wrote his missus a card that says best wishes from Tony Cascarino when she gave birth to it. <laughs> Their daughter, because <laughs> he was signing autographs before he came to the office. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, before he get, went to the hospital, sorry. Uh, anyway, um, I, I, I agree with uh, Jack that QPR don't really make a whole lot of chances. Um, one thing we have to be very careful about is that, yes, it's near an Holloway team and they will play blood, guts and thunder football. They'll try and nibble us wherever they can. And like I don't think that their the quality is there for them to get past our, 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 our K-Max screen and... The two centre-halves, hopefully it's Callas and one other. But I think we can take them, definitely, and it would uh, hurt me very much if we left there without three points. Yeah, I think there's a problem is that it doesn't really matter how well we played, as we saw from the last game against QPR. <laughs> we can literally dominate them start to finish, and it yeah. could go wrong. But going back to that QPR, the initial QPR game, um, looking back at it, it was, it was a type of game that Ian Holloway would have loved at the time. Um, but all QPR had were just aimless shots from... God knows what. It was one of those ones we cast our mind backs. How did we come away losing that game after having two penalties as well don't, for a start? Don't, don't, I know. Don't anyway, sorry. Scrab that, Sammy. Yeah. It never happened. It never happened. <laughs> Edit that one out. It will be interesting, though, to see how this team cope in what's going to be quite a high-pressure atmosphere at quite Loftus like. Road. I imagine their fans are going to be up for it after winning three in a row. Obviously, Loftus Road is not an easy stadium to visit. The fans are right on top of you. It's very compact small shithole that's difficult to visit. I, I mean, I hate QPR more than anyone, but, uh, you know, you can say something for their stadium, which is at least it's not Griffin Park. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. And it's one of those where I think that what we really need and really need to respect on on the weekend is we need a strong referee. We really do, because you can see players like Kenny and Johansson getting absolutely kicked to shreds. Mm. And I think that if... QBR tend to get away if they get away with that at home in front of their home crowds it's going to it's going to rile everyone up it's going to you know make get that get the crowd working behind them because it's obviously going to be you know thunder and, and blood and all the things that Holloway loves and I think that we need to stray away from that because that doesn't suit us we're not good at we're not good at that we don't need to do that because we're a better footballing team than they are and we need to play our game keep possession win the ball frustrate the fans make sure that they've got nothing to cheer about keep the ball and and and, and sort yeah. of just wear them down until the point where someone does something stupid. Yeah. You know, they lose a man, they lose their heads. Bam. There's one player that's come back recently uh, who I'm actually a big fan of, but he's been there for quite a while now, is Jamie Mackey. Yeah, who is, he's a brilliant player. I, I When they got relegated the first time, um, when they had this superstar squad, but their standout player was Jamie Mackey, who'd been there for quite a few years. Um, we were, I, linked, we were yeah, linked with I him was, that summer. I was desperate. I was absolutely desperate for Fulham to get him because I thought... He was he's so direct, he knows where the goal is. He he he's kind of got a James Milner about him that he does a lot for the team, but it's not just scoring goals, it's he creates a lot of chances. He's a very he ha- honest, yeah. hard working yeah. kind of player who doesn't deserve to be loved by a club like QPL. <laughs> <laughs> um so News broke on Friday that Chris Mountain was back and available for selection against Barnsley. Uh, caught me off the hop, to be honest, and we've had a couple of chats on this podcast the last couple of episodes, pretty much resigned to the fact that Chris Martin wouldn't be playing for the club again. Although we did speak last week about how Derby had signed David Nugent for two and a half million and that we thought that why would Derby still want Chris Martin back if they've just spent two and a half million pounds on a new striker. Although they were looking desperately short of uh, firepower on Friday against Leeds. They probably could have done uh, with Chris Martin. So it was announced that he'd be back available for selection against Barnsley. He was then picked. Uh, Slav said before the game, uh, we have resolved this situation inside the dressing room and he's committed 100% with us. We believe in him and the team believes in him too. Now, after the game, he said... I don't know why people ask me about Chris Martin so much. This is not his first game for Fulham. He did not refuse to play for us. He is a professional football player. He was a little bit confused with the situation and now he has a clear mind. Well, now we're a bit confused with the situation. But Thanks, I mean, Slav. <laughs> if Slav said he did not refuse to play, then why come out with the whole 
we are not a train station after the Reading game, where unless it was something lost in translation, he seemed pretty angry with what was going on. It, I, I, but then, unless, I don't know. Unless, the whole thing is, Chris Martin said to, to Slav, I'm not sure what's going on. I've heard these things from McLaren. I'd be interested in hearing what both things have to say. And Slav's gone... No, you're not playing. This is not a train station. You're not playing. And then when people asked him about here, that's got, you know, sort of twisted a little bit and to say that, oh, he's saying this, when maybe it was just a question of he said, look, what are the options? And Slavis has gone, well, that means he's not got his head in the right place. So we need to get sure his head's in the right place before he plays again. And, you know, that's not impossible or unreasonable from either party, in fact. So you reckon that it wasn't Chris Martin's decision to not play? Oh, I, I, don't, I know I you. Don't know. I know you I'm can't just, know, uh, but then I'm, you're in, what, I'm just. <laughs> I'm suggesting things that might have happened. Yeah. I think there's more to it than all of us know. I think the only kind of thing that I can imagine, and Chris Martin is not a player for stirring up dressing rooms by by all accounts. In terms of, he's never had that kind of uh, reputation around him. There was a bit of. Uh, there was a bit of he was sort of the dressing room leader at Derby when there was a bit of chat about him not necessarily getting on with the the Clement regime, but there's speculation that there's more to that than Chris Martin and Paul Clement might wish to, you know, or care to admit. So, you know, we're not going to delve into that, but I think there's obviously some sort of personal issues in here that mean that the club aren't, or the player isn't going to come out and say things. And if he's willing to, you know, play again on the weekend, I think that there's much there must be something more to it because I don't think you do that. I think you either stick to one gun or the other. From a footballer's point of view, if you have a problem, who do you talk to? Your do agent. you talk to... Yeah, I was going to say, do you your talk agent, to your agent? 100%. Okay, and then who does the agent talk to? Do they talk to the manager or is there someone else? Is there like a player liaison potentially Ideally, between them and the manager? Yeah, so every single club, regardless of what tier they're in, has a player liaison agent who will probably talk directly to the player. Um, who will help them from anything from setting up electricity in their house to getting them some new boots to helping them with the correct mortgage from their house. And then they will also talk to the board of directors. This is the player agent. The player will ne probably almost never have a conversation directly with a board of directors and or the manager unless it's at a point where a big decision needs to be made. Now, I think I, I can see where Jack's coming from. I, I've read a couple of reports just, I think it was across the course of today and maybe over the weekend that there was some agent discussions here that um, apparently Martin is currently on 17k a week and was looking for a substantial rise to 25 to 28. And that was where the confusion was because apparently Derby were willing to pay that and give him a, a, like a, a new terms of contract. Whereas Fulham were like, we're not going to pay this. Now, I don't know if there's been some sort of go-between, in which case we agreed to sign him permanently, which I believe we have the option for. Mm. And then next summer, give him a contract that's like 21 or 22K, in which case he'd probably become one of our top earners. Or whether it's been agreed that he will see out the rest of the season here at Fulham and then he'll go back to Derby and earn 25K, regardless of what league they're in. I don't know what's happened. It seems like the, res the, the solution's happened behind closed doors and now Martin's happy, we're happy, and it's all systems go again. So it's potentially the answer that the reason Slav made those comments at the Reading game because Slav was in the dark as well because potentially this was being discussed at levels of Fulham higher than him. He is just the head coach. We have to remember that. He's not actually the manager, as say. He is only in charge uh, of team affairs, so maybe that's why... Slav's comments were taken thus, but you're surprised that Fulham would have published them if, if it was the case that the whole club didn't think it. I just find well, the whole no, situation bizarre. That part is, for me, just basically stands out as Slav and probably with the backing of the board trying to make a statement on behalf of the club. Because there would be times, possibly in the past, where we would have said, OK, he wants to go, let's just let him go, or, you know, we'll try and make him in the reserves and it will never come to fruition. But now I'm so glad, and we said this in a couple of podcasts ago, that we've had this stance where Fulham have become very strong, Slav's been very strong, and the board of directors have sat there and clearly said, we're not a walkover. Even though he's one of our biggest players, if he doesn't want to play for us, fuck him off for a bit and then see how the situation goes. So I think we've obviously published those and Slav would have been told by the board of directors anyway, as with any football manager of a big player, this is the situation. 
So yeah, I'm glad we've made a statement. I'm also very glad he's back. Yeah, I'm very yeah. glad he's back. He was excellent. He was. Really he looked good. so fresh. Absolutely fresh of the weekend. And, and just, although we have been playing well without him in the team for those two games, but with him in the team, he was he was pretty unplayable at times at the weekend. That diagonal ball that he chested down and it was a good stop in the first half mm. was an absolute gem of a touch. It was just that tiny little bit of movement that all he needed. Because he, he's obviously not the fastest player in the world. He's probably not faster than the two Barnsley centre-backs. But that tiny bit of anticipation, that tiny bit of movement, and it was a great ball from Malone to find him. No, oh, there you are. Something Malone did. Good, good. yeah. <laughs> I really liked, uh, for the build-up of the second goal, obviously the cross basically take, takes precedent there because it was a great cross. But there's two stages to that that goal. First is that he's, he flicks it onto Aluko and he finds him, which is something that in the previous three matches where he wasn't playing, we couldn't get a hold of the ball. Um, and then secondly, to make the movement, to allow himself to get into space for that cross and then to have the awareness to realise that he was com- not completely isolated but didn't have the, the people around him to make an effect just to stop the ball and drag those centre-backs straight past him and then loft it in. It's just like that guile we needed up top. Yeah. In previous years, we a person would have played up front, you know, whether it be Dembele, Woodrow, McCormack, whoever. But I reckon a different striker in that position, and it has happened in previous years, that they would make that little bit of space but then they take way too long to actually play a pass after mm. that all it took was Martin receiving that ball he then sort of dragged it back away from the defender one look up bang yeah. across a few seconds that was it we play so quickly now that that's why I think that Ross McCormack wouldn't work in this situation because he, he likes to have too much time on the ball whereas Martin works because he knows what, he, what he's doing before he gets it and knows how to execute it and I watched Ross against uh, Wolves at the weekend. It wasn't his best performance by yeah, a long way. Absolute shocker, by all accounts. I have one reservation about Chris Martin, and that's what happens if we come up against Derby County in a playoff final. Well, we, well, we need. To we play him in disguise. Yeah, we let him wear a Corley Woodrow yeah. mask. I think it's just one of those ones where we're, we're, we're like we're saying all these things, and it's so good to have him back. And he was he made such a difference. He really did, and I thought we would. You know, we looked so sharp in attack and we looked like we had so many sort of options and it's just really starting to get to me that I think this is just you know like one of those things. That Venezuelan strike with the ginger hair looks just like Chris Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Where did they get him yeah. from? <laughs> we just signed Hugo Rodiega on a one-day yeah. deal. <laughs> that, it's Blue Monday today and I wasn't really feeling it until that comment, so cheers for ruining my Monday, mate. Yeah, it's like, like, I really appreciate that. Like, I'd written in my notes, like, we're just getting to the edge of the playoffs, like, we're heating up at the right time, we're really strategically placed as dark horses to jump in there at the last. We're doing a Green Bay Packers and getting hot when it needs to be hot, and now you've fucked it. I'm really worried. Cheers, mate. Who, who, who will, seriously who will Chris about? Martin root for? Us, obviously. Well, until yeah. he dies, mate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never, the badge. never in doubt. <laughs> Fred, did anyone see Ryan Fredericks' tweet? Called him yes, mate, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was amusing. But also, some, someone you know pointed this out to me at the time, and it was one of those things when Chris Martin scored. The pretty much like the entirety of the squad were over to him. You know, mm. everyone came over, and that doesn't strike me as the some... response of a team to a man that's just gone out on strike on them. Yeah, I don't think he has. Yeah. No, I know, but that's what I mean. It's yeah, one of those yeah, things I'm, when people I'm are saying like, that doesn't like you know, much as they're making jokes and whatever about it, and that's that's obviously part of it as well. You know, if Fredericks feels comfortable enough to be like, well, he um, is obviously one thing, but like to see them all respond to him like that is obviously positive and obviously shows that he's part of sort of a, a team and a unit. So, yeah. you know, that's good. Other news that broke on Friday was uh, Hosebez leaving. Uh, he was joining um, Celta Vigo on a six-month loan. Only six months after his four million pound move from Rayo Vallecano. Rayo Vallecano. Rayo Vallecano. Double L's are pronounced as a Y. Okay, Rayo Vallecano. Okay. Now, Ben wrote a brilliant article on Friday, which was called Adios Hosebed. And it was it was very much a what might have been article for Hosebed. I think we were all very excited when he joined. Uh, it was a, that's big money for a championship side to spend four million, reported four million pounds. Uh, we've spoken at length at last season how he scored both against uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona and was a standout player for Viacano as they got relegated to. Is it 
Serie B no it's called, Liga it's called uh, La Liga 123 now because it's sponsored by Santander and uh, their 123 account <laughs> that's the most confusing <laughs> very, thing very very weird trivia but even yeah, even Spain has sold its soul to uh, unfortunately to the first corporate. one called La Liga Santander it's called the other Liga one's called La Liga 123 yeah La Liga Santander 123 <laughs> what division are you in 1, 2 and 3 <laughs> it's weird it's even more strange because um, past La Segunda you've got all the regional divisions so like 2A, 2B mm. 3A, B and C so you don't know what league you're in basically <laughs> <laughs> but Ben the main point from your article was just how he is a good player, just at the wrong time for Fulham. That was that was the crux of your article. But maybe go in a bit more in depth for those that haven't read it yet. Well, yeah. So for me, I think I'm a little bit biased. But Hosbed, over the past sort of twelve to eighteen months before his move to Fulham, had been a vital cog in a Real Vallecano system that is essentially run by what is known in the in the Spanish world as a as a probably a bit of a nutcase manager in Paco Hemes, who used to play centre defensive midfielders as centre backs and stuff like that, and he really shone in a system that allowed Vallecano to play out of the back, even though they weren't particularly good at it. And him and Roberto Trashoras in the centre midfield had a really silky smooth partnership. It would be Osabed would assist the players and get the ball out wide for their wingers, whereas Trashoras would do all the dirty work um, on behalf of. Was a bed, and then uh, unfortunately last season, Vallecano, despite all their promising early season form, sort of transcended into a, a really bad slide where they couldn't get any goals, and they were, they were letting in a lot at the other end. And unfortunately, it led to them being relegated on the last day in somewhat unfortunate circumstances. But yeah, um, and then the move here. Apparently, he was on on the verge of signing for Sevilla, who defeated Real Madrid at the weekend and their forty game unbeaten run. Sevilla, obviously three times champions of the Europa League in a row, um, qualified for the Champions League this year. And obviously when we signed him, it felt like a bit of a coup for the club. There was some nervous, initial nerves in the fact that we feel like we'd really got ourselves a player here. And obviously based on his form last year, I was very excited and I thought he could make a real difference to the team. Not only because of his quality and the fact that he could play more than one position, but obviously when we saw him take to the field in a couple of the championship games, he did look like the physicality, the speed, and that those elements of the game really took him by surprise. And the shock, obviously, of being in Madrid, which is a completely different culture to London, obviously does make a difference, not being able to speak language as well. But he's a great player. He feels like more of a Premier League player because he doesn't want the harem scarum sort of end-to-endness of the championship. He would prefer the structured, sort of free-flowing football of the Prem because that's La Liga is highly tactical and you get a lot of space, or not a lot of space, you get a lot of time, but not a lot of space. And it's up to him to create that space, which is very similar to the Prem, which is why I believe that at the time we're such a good player, but the way we're playing now, too fast for him, too physical, and that's why slightly wrong place, wrong time. Do you think there's a possibility in a dreamland that if Fulham got promoted, yeah. that Hosebed could return to Fulham and have a key part to play as a Premier League player, which sounds crazy that we'd loan out someone because now nah, we, we don't we don't trust you for the championship. But as soon as we've reached the promised land, then we'll get you. There are a couple of players that I think have done it in the past. Obviously, none, none spring to mind right now. But the way I see it is that he, should we be promoted, I think a good comparison, although maybe not the same calibre of player, would be to someone like potentially Gaston Ramirez. Mm. At um, Middlesbrough, who's obviously their creative hub, isn't the fastest player, although his goal the other week was breathtaking. But I think Hosebed could could offer that that incision, that incisiveness, that, that playmaking ability that we could have in the Premier League, given the, the more afforded space you get given in that league. Was he saying more statically? Was he is he as good as Brian Ruiz? Because he was a phenomenal footballer. Well, when we first talked about him and his first couple of games and the, the Middlesbrough game in the cup, where well, we were obviously blessed to be christened with that no touch turn, the Hosebed. <laughs> I think we called it the Hosebed turn, the Hosebed faint, mm. where he lets the ball run across his body to give himself some some space. I think that's the sort of thing we'd see. And Ruiz had the same sort of thing. That languid style that makes him look so relaxed on the ball and it makes him look like he's not trying when in fact like he is trying it's just his way of expressing himself and it's a very Spanish and very like continental mm. way to play it doesn't he's always have to be blood and so, in, so intelligent the way he yeah. just he'd have like four players around him and he'd still be able to just yeah. pick a pass and the pass just wouldn't be 
luck. It would just be forceful, precise, yeah. and I think that's such a talent. It's such it's it was beautiful to watch at times. I you think, know, things yeah. it, things weren't going right for us. Yeah. It's easy to point fingers, but I loved watching him play. Yeah, there are def- definitely some comparisons between the two players. I hundred percent agree with that. We were blessed, blessed to watch Ruiz. For me, it was. We no, I, I believe so. I, I completely agree with you. I think that at points, we saw things that were, you know, nothing short of magical. That chip against Everton stands mm. out as just one of the most technically brilliant goals I've ever seen. And just some of the some of the things he did with the football, you'd be like, oh, you know, unbelievable. But he was lazy, and Dave from H3 didn't think he was ready. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we've come to the end of the podcast. If you want to read uh, more about Hosebed and Ben's thoughts on Hosebed, uh, please go to fullamish.co.uk. Uh, it will be the second article down uh, called Adios Hosebed, or at least for now. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. It's, a great, it's a great article I read. Very, it very good. Thank well, you. Very much worth a read. Uh, so it has come to the end of the podcast, and it is time once again for Secretary Jack to name this episode what are you going for please Jack uh, I think on another one from you Sammy that's two in a row uh, I'm going for the cottage carousel okay after, after the you know magic of the fair that we saw on, on Saturday the cottage carousel the cottage carousel wow what an honour two in a row I know Jack. you're doing well you guys need to up your game yeah <laughs> my submission was going to be is Celta Vigo in the north of Spain <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, um, we'll be back next Monday with another podcast looking back at the West London derby uh, between Queen's Park Rangers and Fulham. Going to be a good one if you're off to the game. Uh, enjoy it if you're watching it on the telly. Then we hope you get three points watching at home. Keep an eye out for us. Lower tier, the boys. Lower tier gang. Oh, yeah. Lower, Lower tier. tier gang. We're aiming for the telly. Should we bring a flag or something? Should we bring a Fulhamish flag? We should make a Fulhamish flag. Yeah. Okay, well, well, we'll do some arts and craft in the week and we'll post it on Twitter if we get round to it. Uh, so um, thank you once again for listening Uh, please go and share the podcast uh, with anyone that you think will enjoy it Farrell, Ben and Jack uh, we'll see you next week adios six months uh, six months in northern Spain Vigo's in the south of Spain yeah it's on the border border of Portugal it's really lovely what? Apparently they do yeah. really nice octopus there. They do. It's a very big port town there. Yeah. I googled where Vigo was and it's north of Portugal. Yeah. Yeah, therefore in the south of Spain. It's in Galicia. What? Yeah. yeah. I'm really confused. I've been, yeah. I'm really confused Porto, by this. I yeah. thought it was in like the north. Its closest city is Porto. Yeah. Which is really nice. So that's not making <laughs> it, doesn't that make it in the north of Spain? Oh, no, I think no, we should. I, send, I think we should send you on a six-month loan to the Vigo um, podcast. To Vigo podcast. Yeah. I still so think you can I'm learn right. all about it. Just, what's going on? <laughs> it's in the north of Spain. <laughs> it's in the north of Spain. <laughs> I told you it was in the north of flipping Spain. Are you trying to wipe me up? Yeah, you're right. I, sh- I shouldn't have gone with the crowd, even though I've been there. <laughs> yeah.